Welcome to Scores and Pours, a podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by Samalia Gilmont and myself, radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to be talking about lava lamps <laughs> and how that relates to wine and classical music. We'll tell you more about it in about 30 seconds. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you want on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There you'll also find a full playlist and a wine list. I'll tell you how this podcast episode got its name. Go on. Emily and I have various ways that we come up with ideas. Sometimes we sit out in nature by the lakes up in Uptown and we, you know, muse on nature, come up with some great ideas. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have done it in coffee shops. Not so much since March. Yeah. So this last time we were sitting uh, at the coffee table in the living room, distancing, <laughs> and I was like looking around. We were kind of in silence and I saw Emily had a lava lamp. And I said, when did you get your lava lamp? And we started talking about lava lamps. And I was like, by God, we have an episode idea. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, lava lamps were incredibly prolific and popular in the 60s and 70s. I have one. Emily has one. Who doesn't have one? You know. <laughs> I mean, cool people have one. Yeah. And so we decided, why don't we talk about themes that were happening in wine and classical music in the 1960s Beautiful. and 70s. Yeah. Lava lamps. I love it. It's great because in the 20th century in general, it was like every decade something hugely influential happened in classical music. So it's just fun to be able to kind of look at a decade and be like, oh, that's when fill in the blank was invented. And for us... Uh, in classical music, we talk about minimalism, minimalist music, minimal music, many different uh, iterations of the word minimal and how it relates to a music that was composed in the 60s. From my angle, I'll ask you this question. Yeah. Before you knew about natural wine and knew about, you know, some different concepts in wine and you just bought wine to drink and have fun. Yeah which I'm still sure you buy wine to drink and have fun. But what, when, you, when you would go to buy wine, what did you, how did you go about buying wine? Oh, it was just like, I, I, no thought, no thought whatsoever. Just so, like, oh, that's $7.99. Beautiful. That's white. Great. Oh, okay. Well, okay. That's a terrible example. Thanks, Emily, <laughs> for not setting me up. Because everyone that I know, if I had a dime. Yeah. I would be supporting us on Patreon for every time I got asked, I'd like a Sauvignon Blanc, please. I'd like a Pinot Grigio, please. I'd like a Cabernet, please. I'd like a Tempranillo, please. Hence, the grape varietal. Yeah. Grape varietals on a label. We'll talk about that. Okay. And how that became a thing. Right. And I'll also talk about how California changed the world of wine as we know it and gave the United States and thus the entire new world at large, uh, a chance to compete against against France for um, people's attention. Amazing. I love this story. It's so, so great. It is, so a, fun, great. It is a fun one. So what, what should we start with? Should we start with uh, some music? Sure. I guess we have for a while been on this streak of starting with wine, so... We actually just start by drinking wine and not even talking about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to talking about it, of course, later. But yeah, let's music. Yeah. So in about 1960, we start to uh, hear a new way of composing and thinking about music. 
a man named Dennis Johnson in 1959 wrote a six-hour-long piece of music called November, which is considered the first, if not one of the first, pieces in this style. Minimalism, often you're staying in a very narrow harmonic range. Again, there are always exceptions to these rules, always, and we'll hear them actually. We'll hear something uh, much later in this episode that kind of bucks a few of these trends. But, uh, but generally speaking, uh, drone music is also along these lines where you're kind of hanging out in one or two harmonic areas. Things aren't changing rapidly. Things are changing very slowly. Sounds complicated. It's so not complicated. <laughs> I know. I just get it. <laughs> yeah, it's really uncomplicated, but also kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is not traditional music, so the performance of it is different. And of course, again, six-hour piece of music, that's just not a concert that a lot of people are going to go to. How about this? Just talk about how complicated and not complicated it is. This gentleman, Dennis Johnson, had a whole, he's categorized surface textures. Yeah. And it's there's like a scale called like the Johnson scale or something. I mean the <laughs> Yeah. He he made he made not complicated complicated, which yes. is like kind of my favorite people actually. Yeah. He um he was a mathematician, right? Yes. And a composer? Yep. Okay. Yes. Yep, math but well, he was a composer then he didn't compose anymore after, I think even in the 60s, he quit composing uh, and just focused on mathematics and tried to get... He was very good friends with Lamont Young, who is an, another pioneer, influential, minimalist composer. And he tried, and Dennis Johnson tried to teach geometry to Lamont Young and his wife just to, to in basically, in his words, show them the beauty of geometry and how you use algebra to do these calculations and geom- and just he just found beauty in math mm-hmm. and uh, really chose to focus on that instead of instead of music at a certain point. But that's so great. So what are we going to listen to from November? We're going to listen to just a couple of the movements just to give you an idea of how the piece starts. We'll listen to the beginning. Okay. So here is the I guess first movement you would call it of. And are there nine? In in theory, I've heard like different, you know, depending on the rendition, right? Because yeah. there are renditions that I've heard are like ninety minutes, and others that are like six hours. Like they'll speed it up or they'll slow it down. They'll cut parts out. So yeah. Do you yeah. know how long the original is? Well, uh, I know Dennis Johnson's original version was intended to be between five and six hours. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, and and again, I I'm not even sure if he intended it for a per, to perform in front of an audience, or I mean, just the contemplative nature of a lot of minimalist music kind of calls that into question. It's like, are we all going to sit in an audience and listen to this together? Yeah, sure, we do, and there are a million concerts a year. Well, pre-COVID, where that was the case, but it's just an, another. The 20th century was really all about shaking up convention when it came to music. We're shaking up tonality. We're shaking up what it means to listen what it means to not listen. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, here we go. This is the first part of November. Again, this movement's 10 minutes long, so we're just going to hear just how it starts, and then we'll go hear a couple different parts from November by Dennis Johnson. It's just a minor third. just starts with a minor third, and we're just going to hear this minor third for a while. 
It's probably at while the tone is changing, as the note dies. Mm-hmm. He's probably figuring out an algebra equation. It's <laughs> like it's the perfect amount of time I can hold these notes, and with my other hand, I can be like. And when you're listening to these two notes, you can hear them fighting against each other because they're not perfectly in tune because a piano cannot be perfectly in tune. That's a whole other conversation. But you can hear waves. You just hear the sounds interact together in a way that you otherwise would go by in a half a second, you know? He died quite recently. He was born in 1938, and then he died in 2018. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've added another element. And this is how it unfolds, right? So if we listen, if we skip ahead through the piece, maybe 90 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> to part seven. Part seven. So we're in a different register of the piano now, you know, but also still using lower notes, but it's more speed. There's space, right? You can hear space between low and high. Minimalist music can be very consonant and not dissonant, but there is definitely dissonance in minimalist music. Even in this piece in November, Mm -hmm. there's dissonance. We're hearing some now, some kind of inoffensive dissonance, and then there's more in other parts. Yeah, minor seconds and things, uh, intervals, notes that are side by side that butt heads. Yeah. So when I hear this, I also, you know, you recognize how important this was to, because he was sort of a one and done, you know, mm-hmm. in, in many ways, just the minimalist repertoire that is to come mm-hmm. is so much of it is based off of these sort of prin- these principles that he's lining up without maybe even knowing he's doing it. One thing, if anybody is interested in and really likes this, there's a really cool um, blog called the Irritable Hedgehog. It's like a blog slash website, and there are you know there's a pianist as a co-founder, but people that are really into um, minimalist movements and like electroacoustic stuff. And there's a gentleman who writes a really great. I mean, it's an entire page that's dedicated to this. Multiple paragraphs on the first time he heard this piece mm. and how taken aback he was by it. Uh, I think his name is uh, R. Andrew Lee. And uh, yeah, so if, if you just, if you really like this music, check out Irritable Hedgehog because there's there's kind of a, one of those um, black right. holes of nice, very minimalist excitement. <laughs> one more movement from November Please. and we'll move on. Yeah, this is very much toward the end. This is the second, the penultimate part uh, and again, you'll hear more dissonance in this in this part. Also, 
another trait of minimalism is the repetition. We're hearing a lot of repetition, right? Hearing the same chords repeated over and over again. That's a minimalist trait. It's music that sometimes, not always, there are much shorter minimalist pieces, obviously, uh, but it, it requires time and attention, you know? And the silence draws you in, the, the space draws you in. Again, silence and space, not always a part of minimalist music, but I mean, I guess silence and space is a part of all music, but uh, in, in a more, you know, abrupt way, I guess. Or yeah. More, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, again, uh, if you listen to our last episode, which we're likely going to publish it uh, before this episode that deals with electricity, it, you need to drink because the music is so chill and somber and sometimes crazy. So we'll drink very soon. Uh, but we need to like amp it up with the excitement of the, t- of the day and talk about wine. Varietal labeling, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, was going to be one of the themes I talked about today. And it's, it all started with a gentleman, his name is Frank Schoonmaker, and I believe he was born in one of the Dakotas in like the 19, 1905, he died in 1976, and he was a proponent of varietal labeling, and what I mean by that is like putting the grape on the label in the 40s, but it didn't really catch on until the 60s and 70s when he was like a staunch advocate of it. He had a lot of people behind him saying, you know, you, this is the this is going to be the new wave of the future. And, you know, we think of nowadays, just we take for granted that something says Chardonnay or, or Cabernet on the label. Yeah. Before it would say some sort of like, semi-generic, usually like some sub-regional kind of way to explain a wine. So, for example, in front of me, we have a Chardonnay from Napa Valley. You know, 50 years ago, that might say Chablis or White Burgundy. And you would kind of know that maybe there's oak or maybe not, but it was maybe Chardonnay, maybe because of the bottle it was in, you would know. Another really popular one is Red Burgundy, Bordeaux was a popular one, port, champagne, to kind of designate what you thought it was going to be without sort of describing on the label. What ended up happening was when that became a thing in the early 80s and people started to produce more and more varietally labeled wines, that became what the entirety of the new world started to do. And when I say new world, I mean everybody outside of Europe. (laughs) So Australia, South Africa, New Zealand... I mean, you you go to Australia right now, and ten out of ten wines say the grape varietal. Semillons, Shiraz, you know, you don't even if it says GSM, that's short for Grenache, Shiraz, Mouvedre. You just kind of <laughs> learn those things. Yeah, and it spreads such that even now in Spain, you'll see the grape varietal on the label sometimes. In France, there are certain appellations where it's illegal to put the grape varietal, but other appellations have said, you know, hey, we know Pinot Noir sells. We know we're Southern France and probably shouldn't even have Pinot Noir anyway, but hell, <laughs> fine, do it. Yeah. So you're you're able to see more and more Sauvignon Blanc on country wine labels and stuff like that. So more and more. And I'm trying to think of in, yeah, definitely in Italy too. Think of Dolcetto, 
Da Alba. It's telling us Dolcetto's on the label. I was shopping for wine uh, months ago, and I remember seeing Verdiso. Verdiso is a very rare white grape from northeastern Italy, and I was like, Verdiso is on the label? An, an Italian wine. <laughs> like, So it's gone now old world as well. Interesting. Yeah. That's so, amazing. Varietal labeling wines. We take it for granted now and we go, I'd like a soft blanc. But <laughs> I just say it because that's how it normally, it's a lot of times how it says, I'll have a soft blanc, please. <laughs> that uh, that just that started in the, to gain traction in the, the yeah. 60s and 70s. Cool. Thanks. That's amazing. Frank Schoonmaker. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate that. Yeah. Do you want to hear more music? Yeah. Do you want to taste wine first? Well, yeah. That You just seemed like you were... I didn't mean to, but yes. I'm so excited to taste this wine. I just watched a movie about it. <laughs> I'll definitely go into that in a little bit. This is a Chardonnay from Napa. We'll talk more about the producer and its importance in mere moments. But tell me what you think. We don't really drink wines like this too often on Scores and Pours. We tend to drink some kind of natty figures and sometimes very sedimenty and yeasty and um, not, this is probably maybe the first Chardonnay we've ever had on Scores and Pours, <laughs> uh, but it's very historic. So what do you think the color? It could be any wine, right? Could yeah. be Pinot Grigio, could mm -hmm. be... Just you know. normal whitish, tiny bit of a yellowish hue to it. Yeah. What do you think about the nose to Scores and Pours? Scores and Pours. It smells a little bit like a chalkboard. Mm. All right. But a fruity one. You smell the little bit of oak, the little touch of butter, like just a little bit of that nuttiness, that hazelnutty quality. Yes, now I can. Yeah, totally. So that's French oak. What about, gosh, I, I love smelling this. It's very fun. Okay, let's, what's the palate like? Lighter than I expected. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Nice acid to be able to cut through some of that little bit of richness in the mid-palate. It's not too thick, even though it was a warm vintage. We'll it's talk round. about that in a little bit. It's very round. I can taste the oak now, can for you, sure. Can you taste a little bit of, like, popcorn? Yeah. Okay. What's that? Is that the oak? Um, that's oak the grape, the grape and the oak and a little bit of the... If this has seen some malolactic conversion, it may have seen that, where it takes that sharp acid, the malic, green apple-like acid, and converts it. It's a bacteria that can be naturally occurring or not that converts it into a lactic... Mm -hmm. More lactic acid. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. Yeah. It's, and I'll talk about why it's so good and its regal qualities in a moment. But um, Napa Valley Chardonnay, never thought we'd be drinking it on scores and pours, but we are, thankfully. Mm. I'm so glad. Love it. All right. Kind of a just an honorable mention because we don't have an audio example of this. Please tell me we're playing some Terry Riley. Well, yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah, not right now, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to get to Terry Riley for sure. But I do want to talk just briefly about Lamont Young, okay. who I mentioned earlier, friends with Dennis Johnson, also a pioneer in the world of minimalist music. Uh, Lamont Young, born in 1935. He's 84 years old. And they all met at – Dennis and Lamont were friends at UCLA. And in 1964, Lamont – wrote a piece called The Well-Tuned Piano that is also supposed to go about five or six hours long. And Lamont Young is the only person other than one other person that he mentored on this piece that have ever performed this. There is a recording of it somewhere out there from, I, th I want to say the 80s, but it's like hundreds of dollars 
on Amazon because it's not in print anymore. And so you have to buy like a used version and it's like seven vinyl records long or something. So it's like, it's not cheap. And since it's out of print, it's like hard to find, but you Mm. can buy it used for lots and lots of money, but you can't like go on Spotify and hear the well-tuned piano by Lamont Young. But it's an interesting piece because he does tune the piano in his own special way uh, for this piece. So uh, anyway, honorable mention there. But yes, let's listen to some Terry Riley. Oh, by the way, that piece also, Lamont has said it's always a work in progress and it's still not finished. So that's kind of cool. She's been working on it for like 60 years. Okay, great. (laughs) Get a Spotify version, buddy. No, just kidding. Don't. (laughs) Don't. The uh, piece we're going to talk about now is a piece called In C. And this is a very famous example of minimalist music from, again, the 60s, a composer named Terry Riley. And this piece is fun because there are all kinds of different versions of it. In terms of instrumentation, there are different, uh, you can kind of mix it up a little bit. So this piece starts with an ostinato, basically a rhythm, a repeated rhythm of the note C. And so let's hear how that starts. Called in C. Called in C. Uh, and what I, I love to, well, I'll, I'll let you listen first and then I'll mention something that I think is great. Uh, this is a cool piece. It's, uh, this one runs about 45 minutes long. So this is piano, obviously. Marimba. So good. Yeah. If you look up this score online, you'll see there are 53 phrases. So phrase being that's one. Or that's one. Right? So there's two of the 53 phrases. Yeah. And they just keep adding elements, different instruments. Um, that's how it works. What's cool as you're listening to this, and you can still hear me. When he wrote how many people should play this, he's like, well, a group of 35 is desired, but if you have less people, that's fine, but I've had up to like 100 people play, and it's sort of like (laughs) so loosey-goosey, it's great. It is. Um, And there have been like versions that have lasted hours, there have been versions that have lasted 10 minutes, but like Emily said, the average is like 45 minutes to an hour and a half. This reminds me of, so this morning I was on hold with Capital One Visa, and they had this ridiculous, you know, music. I was transferred six times, and it was uh, each, like, time I was transferred, I had the same music, and that's still in my head right now. (laughs) This would be great to put on and be put go insane. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Can you hold, please? Yeah, no problem. Terry Riley. Amazing. <laughs> so I'm going to trip you out a little by not only skipping ahead in the piece, but also skipping to a different version. Sure. With different instruments. Very similar instrumentation, but still different. So this is about 20 minutes into this particular recording, which is by the Bang on the Can All-Stars. Bang on the Can is a really great uh, music ensemble in the States here. Is that a bass? So this performance has a bass, cello, 
chimes, which are like big, long, hanging tubes, tubular bells, marimba, clarinet, electric guitar. There's glockenspiel, which is tiny little high bell sounds, uh, a vibraphone, which is also a, a mallet instrument, mandolin, piano, pipa, <laughs> which is a Chinese instrument, soprano saxophone, and violin. Did I say violin already? Yeah. So that's Crazy. this particular cool. configuration. So cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And, and I love how the different combination of instruments really completely change the way it sounds. It sounds like a sitar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's not though. That's so there's cool. some Terry Riley. Very cool stuff from I Terry. Love I love this piece. Yeah, out, of the, out of the three that we're going to listen to today, that's kind of the one that I think is so very, I mean, granted, they can all be varied. You know, anybody can take something and transpose it or, you know, um, I don't know. I just transpose is the wrong word. I just think that when I listen to that, there's it resonates with me uh, more than the other two, although I love the other two equally as much. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, so are we ready to give purpose to this wine? Yes. All right, let me pour a little more in your glass. No complaints there. So you can there. enjoy it while I talk to you about it. So we're drinking uh, the 2017 Chardonnay from Chateau Montalena. And this wine is thanks to Wine Company, who um, is a distributor here in Minneapolis who brings it in in St. Paul and was nice enough to uh, gift us a bottle for the podcast. Thank you so much. We were very excited to showcase a little bit of history here on Scores and Pours. So, Judgment of Paris, otherwise known as the Paris Wine Tasting, was put on by a gentleman named Stephen Spurrier. He's a British, at the time he was a wine merchant, living in Paris, obviously traveling all over France, knew French wine almost better than the French themselves. Very popular in the wine world now. He's a um, very important editor, writer, uh, judges. He's in a lot of wine competitions. You know, you name it, he's, he's done it. He consults for a lot of people. But in 1976, in the springtime, he thought he'd get what he thought was like the best minds in wine in terms of palates, I should say, together in France to judge wines. And they were mostly French, so they had that kind of, we'll just say bias, Mm -hmm. but they also had that in their blood, you know? So we have, uh, just to name a few, Stephen Spreer, by the way, is born in 41. Pierre Brejot. Pierre Brejot was um, a member of the INAO, which... Institut National d'Appellation d'Origine. So he was part of the group that created the rules for Bordeaux, Burgundy. So needless to say, he knows wines yeah. in and out. Yeah. You have uh, Christian Vonick, who was a sommelier at Tour d'Argent, one of the most popular and important restaurants in the world at that time. And then you have Aubert de Villain, who he was the owner of the um, of Domaine de la Romane Conti, some of the most expensive wine in the world sought-after complex burgundies. Obviously, he had a palate, right? And you had 10 judges, and they had red wines was a separate thing, but they had Chardonnays. And they said, let's take six California wines, and let's take four French wines, Chardonnays. And they each, on a scale of 20 points, is the most a wine can get. Zero is the least, obviously. Please 
judge them. And, you know, may the best wine win. Mm -hmm. Blind tasting. Blind tasting. Thanks for specifying. Yes, nobody knew what they were tasting. And out of all, uh, we'll say out of the top five, three of them were from California. (laughs) And number one was this winery and this wine. Obviously Mm -hmm. not the 2017 vintage. (laughs) But it was the 1973 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay. Before then... California wine was known as like kind of hick wine, stick wine. You know, it wasn't very popular and people drank it in California, but you never drank it really overseas. Yeah, nobody took it seriously, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 And here you have a Chateau Montalena beat out a Batard Montrochet, which is a very famous Grand Cru that's right now hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It beat out a Premier Cru from both Pouligny and Chassagne Montrochet, extremely famous vineyard sites that are $80 plus. And when they added up the mean, Chateau Montalena won. And some people, you know, they they do like to talk about how the tasting was done. They'll say, well, you know, that wasn't scientific enough. It, there wasn't <laughs> enough of a, like, categories, like, look at the color, look at the nose, look at the palette. There wasn't like a, almost like a visual algorithm to be able to figure it out. And as much as I I think that I see why they would say that, it's like, guys, if the French won, you wouldn't be having these problems. (laughs) You know, there wouldn't be this kind of slight stigma attached to the tasting. And some of the tasters we know were extremely abstract in how they judged, and others were very like had step by steps how they tasted. Mm-hmm. So we know that there was like a very good kind of patchwork quilt of of maybe how people tasted, but also like they at the time were some of the best palates in the world, which I think is really cool. With the red wines, they did Bordeaux style, so left bank Bordeaux Cabernet based, and then they did. California Cabernets, and Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, 1973, one. California. Then, California, yep. Next to, in second place, was a 1970 Motun Rothschild. Get on the list to buy that wine every year. And I don't, but a lot of people <laughs> do. 1970 Montrose was next. 1970 Aubryon was next. So Stag's Leap beat out what is now considered... Apex Bordeaux. Amazing. And this literally put California wine on the map, but also what we forget, I think, when we think about this tasting, because it's kind of like California versus France. It opened the world's eyes to just new regions that were making wine at the time. You know, Australia was just starting to kind of piddle around and get stuff done there. You know, South Africa had been making wine for for a long time, but paying attention to how good wines can be from these places. So really quite exciting and um, a fun fun to taste a, a little bit of history. Totally. It's so amazing. And of course, there is a movie. Are you going to talk about the movie? Yeah. Why don't you talk about the movie? I mean, it's fun to learn that story. I know it's a drama. It's not a straight up documentary. So it's you know, dramatization of the actual events. But first of all, there's some great actors in it, which makes it super fun. And Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, for fuck's sake. Pardon plays, my language, but <laughs> seriously. Steven Spurrier. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. I mean, any Alan Rickman movie, like we could talk about how great Harry Potter is because of Alan Rickman. So <laughs> True that. It's called it's called Bottle Shock. It's a 2008 film. Bill Pullman plays the part of so great. Jim Barrett. Mm-hmm. And I apologize, I don't remember the actor that plays Bo Barrett. Oh, because, Chris Pine. Oh, what do you yeah, mean? Thank How you. can you, Chris Pine? I know, I yeah. forgot. He's gorgeous. <laughs> He's um, great. 
they talk about the kind of the beginnings of it. And granted, like I said, yeah, we there are definitely some dramatization. There's mm-hmm. like, you know, a love story that we don't really know. That's probably not true. There's just yeah. a whole. But yeah. the basis of the movie talks about Chateau Montalena and how they went about, you know, making wine and becoming one of the sort of one of the most sturdy producers in California because we have producers a lot more expensive than Chateau Montalena and I don't think are honestly as good. Mm. Um, We have a lot of fatty producers like F-A-D-D-Y producers. We have a lot of natty producers. But Chateau Montalena, the structure that you see in the film, that structure, and I'm not sure if they built that, if that was a set or if it was actually on site, but the chateau was actually built in 18, I think, 88. And the gentleman who started it, it was going to be like a barrel aging building because it's made out of, unlike most wineries at the time that were built out of wood, this was built out of stone. Hmm. So it retained temperature better. Part of it is built into a hill, that same building that you can't see from a lot of the movies and angles in the film. And so it's like you, it retains its own temperature that way. So you don't have a need for much temperature control there. But after getting passed down to a family, Yort and Jeannie Frank, they were um, immigrants from Hong Kong. They wanted to retire in California. And they turned it into this beautiful like kind of sanctuary. They made an amazing pond with all these different types of fish. And even today, I think that's all still extant. Oh, nice. But it then fell into Jim Barrett's hands, who like right away when he knew he wanted to have a – I mean, it was literally within a couple of years that he started to – you know, he clear-cut – a lot of the existing vineyards planted new vines, hmm. made you know a barrel room, made it all into a facility to make wine, and then his son Bo Barrett took over the reins and is still there to this day. Jim Barrett has passed away, but uh, Bo Barrett still is the main winemaker. Um, they have a, a younger uh, gentleman who's also helping make wine as well, Matt Crafton. But alluvial soils, volcanic soils here, which don't get talked about a lot in Napa. People just kind of are like, Chardonnay, it's oaky and delicious. Um, (laughs) It's not always the case here. We have oak, but it's very elegant use of oak. This would Mm -hmm. be beautiful with roasted chicken. This would be beautiful with Thai food that doesn't have a lot of heat. You know, this would be – this really – pretty wine to go with food. And they their regimen is they usually like to spend shy of a year in oak. So this is, you know, it's fermented in stainless steel to keep that freshness of the Chardonnay. And then it's aged for about 10 years, or excuse me, 10 months in a combination, mostly older French oak, because they don't want it too oaky. But you got to mix in some new, give a little slutty oak action. Um, (laughs) There's a little bit of new oak in here as well. And... In a vintage like 2017 that was quite hot, this is like a, a really awesome and balanced Chardonnay that I think, for me, that I don't drink Chardonnays that have oak often. I don't drink Chardonnays often. Yeah. This is really, really pretty it and is. really historical. Yeah, and it's very simple, and I don't mean that it doesn't have complexity. I don't mean it like that. I just mean it just tastes good. It just tastes good. It gets a little oakier for me as it warms up. Yeah, and that's uh, normal for wines that have some oak, is the warmer they get, the more that that comes through. The reason why this was considered so epic back in the 70s was, you know, a lot of times winemaking in California, it either wasn't clean or the oak usage was too much or too little. They were all out of balance. They would be maybe, maybe too natty. 
So this, when you smell this blind, there's a lot of oaky California Chardonnay that is, you can peg it because it smells like a freaking microwave popcorn meets canned <laughs> tropical pineapple juice mess, you know, <laughs> cream, like a, the fruit cocktail. Okay. And you'd be like, oh, California Chardonnay. Huh. The reason that this doesn't qualify and fall into that camp, even though it's very California, what California is capable of in this style, is it maintains this elegance of there's acidity for freshness, but there is this elegance in its oak usage, yet you can definitely taste that it's Chardonnay. You get this like stone fruit, this, you know, myriad types of like apples and pears without being too one way. You know, we're not in Riesling super aromatic territory or we're not. Yeah. And so it's just very focused use of oak and that for its time was not, you know, and just being able to capture the essence of balance was very of the French style. Mm -hmm. And I've had old vintages of Chateau Montalena. They do age quite well. I've never had the 73, unfortunately, but um, someday I'll break into the Smithsonian and steal that bottle <laughs> or something. I mean, don't put it past me. Yeah, it just has the elegance that French Chardonnay has. Yeah. And it's hard to find. It's delicious. A couple more honorable mentions. Steve Reich, super famous minimalist composer, American composer. You might like his music for 18 musicians. Another name you might have heard, John Adams, famous American minimalist composer. You might like his short ride in a fast machine. That's a very brief piece of minimalist music that's quite popular and heard at many, many con that's that's a super popular piece. talk about one of the other big heavy hitters in minimalism, Philip Glass. He wrote a set of five pieces he calls Metamorphosis, one, two, three, four, five. Here you go. This is Metamorphosis 5 by Philip Glass. One Use thing. Go ahead. Oh, one thing I wanted to just point out for listeners that, are, you know, like to think about and actually take our, you know, when we're pairing wines or talking about wines as we're tasting, the Chateau Montalena could not be almost further from this kind of music. And mm. what I mean by that is like this wine is like elegant and classic and like very of the maybe not even romantic or baroque, very of the classical era. Very Mozart. Like Mozart. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Whereas I agree. You know, if the music that we're listening to right now is like very of the natty, it says <laughs> it's like Trousseau Gris that's been aged in Lord knows what. So it's interesting that we're having, even though they're built in the same decade, yeah, 
or decades yeah. that they kind of are radically different in how they actually kind of quote unquote pair up. Definitely. I, I could not oh, agree more. Scores and pours, academic moment. <laughs> cheers. We got to cheers that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, this is totally more direction. Certainly not all minimalist music is broody, but there's a lot of broody minimalist music. <laughs> just kind of like a little emo, like just a little like in in your own headspace kind of. And as a style of music, you can pick it out from a mile away. Like yeah. you, you can't you can't be like, oh, is this minimalist? As far as 20th century music goes, there are so many different, you know, avant-garde and atonal and serial and 12-tone, and some of those can be a little tricky to discern because of the atonality, perhaps, or or whatever, but to me, minimalism is its just so, you, you can hear, and again, a, a, a style of music that is now ubiquitous amongst all media, you hear minimalist video game scores. One of my favorite game scores uh, is by a guy named Olivier Derivier, really talented French composer, and he wrote a beautiful minimalist video game score. Uh, there are obviously loads of minimalist film scores. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's to the U.S. coming out on top and one of the mm -hmm. most famous tastings of our time. Battle of the Wines. Here's to some music that kind of makes you want to drink. <laughs> scores and pours. Just scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this entire episode and support us financially. Thank you very much at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours. Working on the Reddit thing. We'll be on Reddit soon enough. You'll be able to check out updates there too. We have good karma. We swear. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. 
edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. 